I know I've probably read this before, but I want to read it again. This came from a book called I Just Want to Be a Christian. It talks about, well, this passage that I'm going to read today talks about what happens to churches. And it wasn't originally talking about churches, I don't think. But I'll just read it. The first generation is made up of the founding fathers and mothers who have some things in common, and they're drawn together by a vision of something new for which they have paid a high price. Often they have left some old institutions to join the new movement. Friends and relatives sought to draw them back. When this failed, cut them off. Moreover, they faced high risk, for there was no assurance that the new organization they had founded would survive. Cut off from their old world, they're bound together by strong ties of fellowship and oneness of purpose. The second generation is made up of the children of the founders or by the generation that takes over from the founders. And here a major structural change happens. While the founders paid a high price to leave their old institutions to form the new one, the children grow up within the framework of the new institution and its programs, and the cost is not so high, but neither is the commitment. Members of the second generation do grow up amid the excitement, sacrifice, and commitment of a new movement, but they acquire secondhand the vision that motivated their parents. And by the third, fourth, and fifth generations, the new movement has become the establishment. And these generations grow up with the institutional structures, and in churches, the children go to Sunday school and youth meetings with their friends, and then, with those friends, they make profession of faith and are baptized. In schools and mission agencies, people work their way through the ranks to position of leadership for all of them to remain within the institution is the least, the path of least resistance and cost. Sometimes I wonder where we are in the middle of that. If we're just satisfied with where we've been, some of you remember some of the sacrifices that, that happened, but some of us just kind of go along for the ride. In the book of Revelation, there's a church there, the, book of, or the church of Ephesians, uh, the church from Ephesus. And it's, it's given from encouragement from Jesus and he tells them, he said, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's not a whole lot known about the Nicolaitans. Um, it's generally believed that the Nicolaitans advocated some kind of accommodation to Christianity. And uh, this was a pagan environment. And so it was kind of like, it's okay if you do those things. But it's also okay if you're a Christian. And so there was this blend of things that happened. In other words, you can be a Christian, but do whatever you want. We have a, a couple of things in our lives that are fighting against each other. And Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. 
You know, he says, the things that I want to do, those aren't the things that I keep on doing. No, the things that I keep on doing are the things that I don't want to do. And he calls himself a wretched man. I, I've read that passage, I can't tell you how many times. And I was just thinking, can you imagine Paul seeing something that he used to do and having that, that urge, that pull that says, let's do that again. And so Paul has this fight that goes on within him. And we have this same fight. It's the fight of flesh and spirit. Some of you may be dealing with it right now. You may not want to be here. You'd rather be somewhere else. You'd rather be at, uh, uh, at Vidlax eating lunch. But you have to be here. And so you're kind of got that tug, that pull, and they seem to be pulling in opposite directions. And so these com combatants lead to two different lifestyles. The first is found in Galatians chapter 5, where he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality. Some of you may be dealing with that right now. Impurity, debauchery, I looked that one up, heard it all my life. Excessive indulgence in sensual pleasure. And you know what? These may be more than just sexual pleasure. But it would include things like pornography. Idolatry and witchcraft, Woo! don't have to worry about that one. I'm not a witch. I don't do those witchy things. Hatred? Uh-oh. Starting to step on some toes here. Discord? Jealousy? Fits of rage? Selfish ambition? Dissensions? Factions and envy? Drunkenness? Orgies? And the like. I remember preachers a long time ago, you know, as I was growing up, they emphasized and the like. Uh, in, in, the, in, or in the King James Version, it was and such things, you know. Uh, and, and so we, we guilted people as far as that was concerned. But when we look at this list, we see this flesh pulling at us. And he ends this passage with this. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh my goodness, so what do we do? Well, then there's the other lifestyle that Paul talks about. And it's right after this. He says, but the works of the flesh are love and joy and and peace, and, and he's really talking about our relationship with God there, isn't he? Oh yeah, we can, we can include that with other people, but if our relationship with God is not what it should be, then all the rest of them don't work either. But I don't know about you, and we're going to continue this list here in just a minute, but when I read that first list, and then I read this second list, I get this uh, calmness of spirit uh, in my body when I read this second one thinking, Man, this is so peaceful and relaxing. 
whereas that first one just tugs. And then he goes on and says, and patience and kindness and goodness. He talks about our relationship with others. Are we patient with others? Are we kind to others? And then he says, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I thought it was interesting. If you read into Acts, you read some of the things that Paul talks about to some of the some of the leaders, you would think, okay, you know, Paul, you, you're going to bring up different things. But one of the things he brings up is judgment and the life and, and the way you live. And he says, against such, there is no law. And listen to how he ends this list. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Wow, what a concept that is. In essence, what he's saying is, if you become a follower of Jesus, and if you've received his abundance of grace and mercy, and you, you have tasted that the Lord is good, and, and, and if you have not been changed by his love and his mercy and grace, then something's wrong. We've got to act differently. We, we are different. The inside is different. Paul could have continued to live his life the way he did, but he was changed. The love of God affected his life in such a way that he, his whole demeanor changed. In fact, Paul admitted this change when he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. He said, I didn't just receive the grace of God and say, that's it. He said, it changed me. Look at the apostles. Took them a while. Oh, they were a group of self-centered guys that that followed Jesus, they argued about who was the best. They asked Jesus for uh, a place at his left and a place at his right. And I, I wonder, I, I would love to see this scene as they're sitting down to eat sometimes, if there's a little elbowing going on, saying, you know, I'm going to sit by him, you know. They were a group of self-centered men who were con concerned about their appearance, and even Peter denied him. But things changed. The Sanhedrin, when they had called them in, it said they noted that they were unschooled, ordinary men, but they took note that they had been with Jesus. In other words, what happened was they changed. Something happened. I think of Zacchaeus. We sing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbs up in the sycamore tree. That's not the story. The story is he comes to Jesus and says, listen. In fact, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to your house to eat. And he, and he says, I will pay back the things that I have done wrong to these people. I will change. I think about the woman at the well. And Jesus says, you know, I want you to go back into town and get your husband and, and bring him back. And he says, I have no husband. He said, you're right in saying that. 
that you don't have a husband. In fact, he says you've had five and the one you're living with right now, not your husband. She changed. I think about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And there's some indication that there was a change that came about in their life. Oh yeah, they, the change came as far as uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead, but I think it was Mary that washed Jesus' feet. One of the accounts in the Gospels talk about, well, if he were really who he says he is, he would know who's washing his feet. I wonder if that was Mary. She changed. I think about the demoniac from the tombs who came to Jesus. He wouldn't even keep his clothes on. He would rip them off. They tried to put him in chains and he would take those off. He'd get out of those and Jesus heals him and he wants to go with Jesus and Jesus says, no, I want you to stay and tell what the Lord has done for you and what happened to him. He changed. Think about the thief on the cross who was being killed because of a crime he had committed. And he chastised the other one and said, listen, we're here because of what we've done, but he's done nothing. And he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says this very day, and I know what you might say. You might say, well, how did he change? He died that day. Well, more than likely he did, but it changed his life. When you were a rabbi in ancient days, your students lived with you. They ate with you. They came to you. They, uh, everything they did was with you. In fact, our whole college educational system was set up on that very uh, model. Back in the early days, what happened, students would often go and live with their professor. They'd pay the professor tuition and room and board and live there. But I love this saying. The saying goes something like this, and I may be butchering it. But it says, may the dust of your rabbi be on your face. That you follow so closely that you're there and the dust from his sandals comes upon your face. And it's important to note that this change in our lives is not just a cosmetic change. I, I have developed an addiction to some shows on HGTV. <laughs> it's all Martha's fault. <laughs> Amen. I'll turn in my man card after this. <laughs> I like shows like Good Bones and, and, uh, and, and some of those others, uh, Fixer Upper and Help I've Wrecked My House and and just those kind of things. But can you imagine? I mean, they go in and they rip the whole house up. They say, oh, this is a problem. Why don't we take this wall out, you know? And I'm like, how do they know they can take that wall out? Can you imagine if the show would be, you know what? Let's leave the house the way it is and just put a little coat of paint on it and everything will be just fine. 
And people come in and say, oh, this looks wonderful. You've done a great job. And they walk into their house and say, you've done nothing in here. It's kind of what happens to us sometimes, isn't it? We proclaim that we are his followers, but nothing changes. This passage from Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Isn't that an awful image? Isn't that a terrible thing to think about? And yet that's exactly how he describes those who follow him in name only. The scripture is filled with exhortations to live an excellent and praiseworthy life. In fact, in Philippians, Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. He says, I want you to be worthy of the gospel. And then he says in Ephesians 4, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He says, I want you to be worthy. The, 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 new King, uh, the kingdom New Testament. So this is my appeal to you. Yes, it's me, the prisoner of the Lord. You must live up to the calling. What Paul says is, we need to change. We need to be different than we used to be. Leave, live up to. And what I really like about this passage from Ephesians chapter 4. Have you ever read the context of that? We tend to throw that verse out there like I just did. But if you read the passage up above that, you know what it says? It's right after Christ's love. Paul says, this is how much Jesus loves you. It's, it's how wide and long and high and deep it is. And, and the one who is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than I can ask, than you can ask or imagine. He says, Jesus loves you so much and he can do so much. And then he says, Live up to that calling. But he's saying, I'm not saying, don't do it on your own. I'll be right there with you because I can do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. He helps us along. And why do we gather like this? Why do we come together on Sunday morning? We've used that passage from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. You know, never forsaking the assembly, but the reason why we assemble together is to encourage one another. We've sung songs, beautiful songs today. When we all see Jesus, what an encouragement that is. What a wonderful name it is. And he calls us 
to live a life worthy. I want to read Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. What's he saying? He's saying, I want you to change. Where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Parenthetical expression from me, but you changed. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. And therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, and bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There is change all over that passage. And he says, I don't want you to stay where you are. I want you to change. Appreciated what Nick had to say. How different are we this week than we were last week? It's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's a tough time. It's a gradual change. The question then comes down to this. And I can't answer it for you. Have you changed? Has something different happened to you since you decided to follow Jesus? Or if we were to take a snapshot of you, yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing to me. We do, we do these uh, church directories all the time, and we, you know, the second we produce them, uh, it, it, somebody has changed, they get their hair cut differently. Um, uh, people's hair turns gray. <clears throat> no, nobody say anything about that. Uh, kids change. Oh my goodness! You look at them and you say, oh, "When did they grow up?" 
We, we just celebrated three birthdays today. And I, you know, I just remember, I remember births. I, you know, I sit here and I, I look at Anna Help. You know, she's a senior in high school. I, I held her when she was a little baby. But, you know, can you imagine if we would put in the church directory a picture of the Help family with her as a baby? Somebody would say, well, we need to change that, don't we? There is a picture being taken of you every day. Oh, I don't mean a picture where we, you know, look at our physical being, but there is a picture that's being made of our spiritual being every day. And I wonder, I wonder if we could see that, if we'd be able to say, there's a change that's happened and it's good. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. I, I guess I, I would just end this by saying, let's change. We're going to sing a song for, for you. We, our, our, our invitation is always open. Sometimes we'll, we'll do it at the end. Sometimes it's all during the service. So I want you to know the invitation is always open. You're a, you're a conversation away, a phone call away. And, and that's why we come together, is to encourage one another. Our shepherds and their wives will be in the back if you want to talk to one of them. Or if you want to proclaim uh, something to us as a congregation, we also make that available to you. But whatever you want to do, would you take care of that right now while we stand and sing this song?